Hi, I'm Bill Carell. I'm one of the elders here, and I'd like to read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 1 through 8. So Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel, and he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I'm no longer able to come and go, and the Lord has said to me, You shall not cross this Jordan. It is the Lord your God who will cross ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you, and you shall dispossess them. Joshua is the one who will cross ahead of you, just as the Lord has spoken. The Lord will do to them, just as he, said, as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land, when he destroyed them. The Lord will deliver them up before you, and you shall do to them according to all the commandments which I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail, fail you or forsake you. Then Moses called to Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall give it to them as an inheritance. The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. God bless the reading of his holy word. This morning we're blessed to have uh, Nate Hedega with us this morning. He's the executive minister for Converge Northwest that our church belongs to. And uh, he's been married to his wife, his, to his high school sweetheart, Amy, for 33 years. Together they have six kids and four amazing grandkids, and one of their kids, Levi, is with him this morning. So uh, we'd like to welcome you here. Uh, Nate has been involved with planning uh, Cascade Church in Monroe 24 years ago, and over the, year, over the years, Cascade's multiplied to 20 daughter and granddaughter churches that are located primarily here in Washington. So welcome, Nate. Thank you for being here with us. Good morning, everybody. And it is so good uh, to be here in the high desert, in the sunshine. Uh, last night we left it uh, in Monroe and uh, stayed over in Easton, Cleelum area, and then made the, the run this morning, the last little bit. Hey, I just want to give a shout out. Uh, I, I know that worship team and tech folk, uh, they don't do what they do so that they'll be noticed, but we would notice if they didn't do what they do. So can we just say thanks to the worship team and to the tech team? Uh, thank you. I think you guys have figured out, right, uh, the worship team gets all the, gets all the hype, but uh, it's the tech guys that we only notice when something goes wrong. And then everybody turns around and looks at them like, what is your problem, bro? Um, right? So uh, we just want to give a shout out before anything goes wrong. And if it does, we'll assume it's Satan. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's it. Right on. Um, man, I have been looking forward to being with you, Grace Point, uh, for several months since I uh, got the invitation. And... Uh, I bring you greetings uh, from all over the Northwest. Uh, over 100 churches are in Converge Northwest. Uh, we are the five small states of the United States of America, uh, Montana, Alaska, Washington, Oregon, and Idaho. So there's uh, about 103, 104 churches uh, across um, these five states, and they have been praying for you. They've been praying for uh, you not only through the pandemic and all the chaos and the changes and everything that's been going on uh, for everybody, but they've also been praying for you as my wife Amy and I have, uh, as you have been walking through disease and uh, now the shadow of death with Pastor Gary 
And so I uh, just want you to know that we love you. We're praying for you. Uh, the other churches know your story, at least many of them. Uh, many have actually contributed to uh, assisting with some of the needs and uh, care that you are ongoing with. Um, last 18 months have been rough on everybody. They've been rough on uh, no matter what your station in life, uh, what your leadership position or platform is, they've been rough on everybody. And uh, as I get a chance now to visit a number of churches uh, every month, what I'm finding is, is every leader, every pastor, every elder board, whatever it's called, deacon board, chairman, whatever, every leadership team in every church has either been called a coward or a killer. Usually both, especially if you took a middle road. You kind of got it from both sides. And, uh, and I just want to say, uh, leaders, thank you for walking with integrity. We all understand that in a church, everybody has an opinion. You guys, is that true here in Ephrata? Yeah, everybody has an opinion, and, uh, and leaders are trying to, to walk a line of listening to Jesus on the one hand and, and trying to discern uh, what is best for this moment in the life of the church, and everybody has an opinion. And sometimes, you also know this, you don't get your opinion, right? Your agenda isn't the one that's going to always carry the day. And, and so thank you for serving each other graciously, and uh, I don't know all the story, but uh, you guys have pulled together and are a united church despite an enormous amount of adversity that you have been through. I want to give a shout out to those that are watching online or those who will be watching later online as well. Uh, we're just praying for God's continued grace for you as a church and for his guidance for you in this season. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you have heard our worship this morning. We just ask that that would have been a delight to you. And as we open your word in these next moments, Jesus, we just invite you to do what only you can do. You're the only one who knows exactly where each of our hearts are at. You're the only one who knows what we came in stressed about, anxious about, uh, the unfinished to-do lists that are in the back of our heads, the deep pain that some of us are carrying, the guilt and the shame that some of us are, are having to deal with. And so, Jesus, would you do what only you can do by your spirit? Would you encourage us where we need to be encouraged? Would you kick us in the pants where we need that? And, uh, Jesus, we just say yes. The answer is yes. Whatever you say to us, whatever you want to impress on our hearts and on our lives today, the answer is yes. We will follow you. So, Jesus, would you give us the discernment to know the truth and then the courage to actually do it? In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, let me tell you a little bit about me. Um, you heard uh, just a touch already. Uh, I've been married to Amy for 33 years. We just celebrated our 33rd anniversary and um, uh, had a great time going out to dinner together. And what did we talk about? Our grandkids. That's pretty much what we talked about. Actually, we did a, a, just uh, dinner was taking forever. And so we just decided, let, let's, let's try to remember a highlight moment from every year of the last 33 years. That was really hard. <laughs> and it took us about an hour and a half. We would meander off on conversations and come back and say, okay, 1998, what were we doing? Oh, the church was one year old. We don't remember any of it, right? So uh, that's kind of how it is. We, we have six kids, uh, four of them the old-fashioned way. Uh, the youngest two uh, are adopted. And uh, kind of... Kind of uh, 
spread, about a nine-year gap between our youngest, oldest, and our two youngest. Uh, Levi is here with me today. Can you just raise your hand up? All right. Levi's usually my travel buddy. He's 12, just entering seventh grade. His older brother is ninth grade, just entering uh, high school years this year. Uh, my staff at Cascade used to tell me, uh, the boys, both Isaiah and Levi, have extended your relevancy by at least 15 years. <laughs> you were just old. That's what they told me. Uh, I said, well, that, there's some truth to that. Uh, but they have brought so much joy uh, into our lives and uh, vice versa. Uh, we have four grandkids. Uh, the picture right there is actually the youngest. That's when she was like three days old. We couldn't go to the hospital, so I was sort of irritated for three days. Uh, but then we got to go over and visit with them. Uh, we have two little boys, uh, grandkids, that are uh, three. Is that correct? Three and one, uh, one and a half. And uh, then we have uh, two little girls now that are both infants. One is six months old, and the other is about six weeks old. This is the six-week-old Emmy, along with my wife, Amy. Uh, lots of things have changed in my life uh, in the last year and a half. Uh, I'm a local church guy been a local church pastor for 34 years, so one year longer than I've been married, um, started young, and uh, always thought I would just, I would die in the pulpit. I mean, I used to joke with the elders at Cascade, um, the church that we planted in Monroe, Washington, I used to tell them, I, I'm just going to die in the pulpit, and you guys can roll right into a memorial service, just have an associate guy come up, take care of it, uh, you know, don't make a big deal out of it, just keep preaching the word. Um, and last, or last year, I actually felt God calling us to uh, a regional role. And so we stepped out of the church that we planted um, and uh, continue to attend there, which is sort of weird, but it's working at this point. As long as I stay out of uh, politics and all of that, uh, it's working. All six of the kids attend there as well. But uh, I started a new career serving the district uh, at a perfect time, really, the beginning of 2020. Right? Had two whole months of normal before everything shut down. And uh, some of the other district leads from around the nation have, have said to me, you know, how, how are you doing with all this? Because we're all you know, scrambling. And I said, I, I guess I'm doing fine because I didn't know what it should have been. So <laughs> this is what we do, I guess. We, we help churches figure out protocols and listen to governors changing their mind every two weeks. And uh, that's kind of what we have been doing for the last uh, 18 months or so. So I'm now moved from a local church context and serve uh, the larger body of Christ. And as uh, was mentioned, in 1997, we planted Cascade Church as a daughter church of North Shore, then Baptist, now Community Church. In Kirkland, we took about uh, 70 adults from that church and from our community, people that have come to, had come to faith in Jesus Christ, started a church, and we just determined from the beginning, we're going to be a church that plants churches. Um, I did not want to be uh, the pastor of a large church. I was leaving a large church, and so I figured we're going we're gonna to grow to 150-ish, uh, and we'll reach 150 of our closest neighbors and friends who don't know Jesus yet. Um, God completely scrambled uh, my agenda, and it became something that uh, felt a little bit like we had a tiger by the tail for a while. And so we just decided when we hit certain thresholds, in terms of numeric attendance, that we would just kind of cut the top off and we plant a church in a village around us. And so that's what we did over those uh, 23 years. Cascade continues to thrive and to do well today. And like I said, uh, when I'm in town, I get a chance to, to be there. So let me just talk a little bit about who and what converges. Um, some of you may be coming in and going, converge, I've never even heard of that. Um, and I used to have to remind my church often because most of the church was like, we, we're part of a larger family. Why? 
what? Uh, so whether you like it or not, or whether you know it or not, you're part of a larger family. Uh, you're part of Converge, which used to be uh, Baptist General Conference, which is another way of saying Vanilla Baptist. And before that, we were the Swedish Baptist, which was just a, we, we came out of Sweden. And uh, then second generation, third generation, like every other immigrant group, did not speak the mother tongue and began to speak English. We became the Baptist General Conference, and then about 20 years ago, moved on to a movement name called Converge. We're about just under 1,500 churches nationwide, known for church planting. Uh, we are one of only a handful of mid-sized associations or denominations that are growing through multiplication. In other words, we are growing by church planting. Um, and we have a, a goal right now of planting, uh, and crazy thing is we set a new five-year church planting goal as a nation of Converge uh, right uh, at the end of January 2020. Perfect time to set five-year goals, right? But in God's providence, uh, he's surprising us. Uh, in 2020, we, uh, we do church planting assessments, which help to they, they double, even triple uh, the success rate of new churches. Uh, we had three church planting assessment centers that were canceled at the beginning of 2020 due to the pandemic, uh, which we all could understand. And so we were all bemoaning as national leaders, what are we going to do? How are we going to hit this goal of, of starting 316 excuse me, 312 new churches. That was the goal, 312 new churches by the end of 2025. Uh, and then we had no new planters coming into the pipeline. By the end, catch this, by the end of 2020, we actually assessed more church planting couples than any other year in our history as a movement. That's more than 165 years. More church, and, and I, I think I know why. This is just anecdotal, it's not scientific, but I think, I think a lot of couples who had felt God doing this or this, right? Hey, hey, I want, you to, I want you to go out. I want you to take a risk. I want you to plant a church. All of a sudden realized during the pandemic, the world really is going to hell. And we really better get on board with God's call for our life. And, and so a lot of couples have stepped forward in that. And here in our region, what that looked like is during the pandemic, uh, we had one new church start in Sherwood, Oregon. Uh, they started with a drive-in service. So people drove into the parking lot, and the pastor preached, and it came in over their AM radios, and everybody honked to say amen. That's distracting, by the way. I've preached in a few of those in the last year, and uh, it is fascinating to suddenly have your thought train interrupted with all the horns honking. You know, right? I don't know about you guys, but my instinctive reaction when somebody honks the horn is to sort of grimace and then glare, right? And, uh, and it's a little bit different when it's in a church. Uh, we have five plants, five, that are scheduled to launch uh, this year uh, around the Northwest. Uh, and that's a, that's a significant number for us as a district. And God is at work among us. We actually have a church planting center again coming up in Puyallup at Bethany Baptist Church uh, in about three weeks. And we'll be assessing, uh, I believe, 12 couples for church planting going forward. So our goal here in the Northwest is to plant 25 churches by the end of 2025. And uh, we're a little bit behind that pace, but uh, given 2020, I think that we're going to see some gains going ahead. So uh, I'm excited about that. Let me just mention one other thing. The church that already launched this year is, uh, was launched out of Kenmore Community Church. I don't know if you know Kenmore. It's at the north end of Lake Washington on the east side of Seattle. That church was started in 1933, and in their entire history, they had never multiplied. Well, they'd kind of multiplied. There were a couple church splits in there, but we don't really count that as church planting. 
Last January, their pastor, Mark Rogers, gave me a call, and he said, hey, I got this, this guy from Iran that's in my church. And, and he's gathered around him a bunch of people that speak Farsi, Persian. And I think he might be a church planter. We met with him, took him through church planting assessment, free assessment, full assessment, uh, training, church planting 101. They launched on Father's Day this year the first Farsi-speaking uh, converge church plant in our history, uh, domestically. And, uh, and he's beaming his messages around the world and behind the Muslim curtain, people are coming to know Jesus Christ because of the work of that particular church plant. So we celebrate what God is doing. Can we just say yay God about that? Yay God. All right. All right. So as a local church guy, I am absolutely thrilled when I don't have to preach one of the two or three stump messages that I've sort of prepared, that I, I preach on larger vision and Acts 1-8 and that kind of thing. And so when I got asked to, to speak here and you guys said, hey, we're, we're in a series, I'm always thrilled when I get to jump into a series and write a new message. And you guys said, it's Joshua. And I said, yay, I love Joshua. And I'm thinking Joshua 1, Joshua 2, Joshua 7. Anything but the back half of Joshua, please. And um, you've been thinking through the narrative of Joshua. And so uh, when I got sent the text, Joshua chapter 16, I actually read it aloud to my wife and said, check out what I get to preach on. And she laughed and said, you're going to have fun, aren't you? Because um, chapter 16, as we're about to see, it's basically a land-grant description, right? It's a legal doc. It's a land-grant description. Now, I'm an archery hunter. I hunt, hunt elk, deer, bear, cougar with a bow. And usually in, um, in unit 336. So that's kind of the Cleellum South sort of area. And... Uh, and I've actually read in the regulations of the Washington State Fish and Game Department, there are regs that come out every year, I've read the description of Unit 336 a number of times because I want to know if I'm chasing something and I cross a boundary. That's exactly what Joshua 16 is. It's a unit description. It's a grant description. And so I uh, just want to say thanks for the password. <laughs> um, actually, actually, with all that said... Um, we're going to find some surprises in this text this morning. And I'm actually really excited to open it up together and to think about it together. We're talking today about living a legacy. Living a legacy. Your pastor, Gary, has lived a legacy. And so has Grace Point Church. We all leave a legacy. A legacy is what is handed down to us from somebody who has gone before an ancestor, typically. We're all in the process today of living a legacy. We haven't necessarily left it yet, but we are living it today. And what we do and what we say today is already being watched. It's being caught by those who are coming up in the next generations. Many of you are grandparents. Many of you are parents. You know, don't you, that the little people in your life as they become big people, they are way more influenced by what you do than by what you say. Right? You figured that out, right? Like, they might hear what you say, but what you actually practice in your life is far more easily caught than what you teach. The point is this. Live carefully. Live thoughtfully and in obedience 
to God. Let me take us back to the passage that was read just a little bit ago. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 1 through 8. And I know, I know, this is not the passage that I was assigned this morning. But I want to pull back just a little bit and give us sort of the larger context in which Joshua takes place. Deuteronomy 31. Moses is about to transition. He's, he knows he's going to die. He knows he can't go into the promised land. Can you imagine the grief in his heart? He's passing on leadership, and he's giving some final words from God. Moses went out, spoke these words to all Israel. I am now 120 years old. I'm no longer able to lead you. I think if I'm 100 and still able to lead, I'm going to be pretty stoked, actually. 120. The Lord had said to me, you shall not cross the Jordan. The Lord your God himself will cross over ahead of you. He will destroy. Who will destroy? He. He. God will destroy these nations before you, and you will take possession of their land. Joshua also will cross over ahead of you, as the Lord said. And the Lord will do to them what he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites. Years earlier, they had come against the children of Israel. They were destroyed along with their land. Verse 5. The Lord will deliver them to you, and you must do to them all that I have commanded you. Verse 5. I'm going to read it again. Did you catch that? This is the promise as they head into the narrative of Joshua. The Lord will deliver them, the enemies, the people in the land, to you, and you must do to them all that I have commanded you. What, was, what were they supposed to do? Drive them out. Destroy them. Partially or utterly? Utterly. utterly. Right. That's important. We'll see it in a moment. And then he says this, which is a theme all the way through Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or do, do not uh, be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord, your God, goes with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And then Moses summoned Joshua and he said to him in the presence of all Israel, Be strong and courageous for you must go with this people into the land that the Lord swore to their ancestors to give them. And you must divide it among them, which we're seeing in chapters 14, 15, 16, and so on. Divide the land as their inheritance. And here it again is again. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. In other words, this is a, this is a, let's go. He's speaking aspirationally. You can do this. Go. God is with you. He won't leave you. He won't forsake you. He fights for you. You just have to do your part. And again, this injunction to be strong and courageous, to go and to take the land, remembering that God himself goes before them. Grace point, it occurs to me that this promise is for you in this season as a church. You're facing what very few churches will experience in their entire lifetime. A 23-tenured veteran pastor who has become ill and is in the dying process, unless God does a miraculous sort of healing in these final days. You're watching a family walk with Jesus through the valley of the shadow of death. Your hearts have been broken in this process. And so I'd like to invite you to read verse 8 aloud. It's the last verse right there with me right now as a way of saying this is our reality. Let's read it together. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. 
He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Amen. Flip over Joshua chapter 16. Here's our land grant, our inheritance description. Remember the story, Joseph is getting his inheritance, but it's being broken up between his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Uh, you've already heard, uh, I listened to the last two sermons that were done the last two weeks. You've heard a lot of the detail of why these inheritance pieces were going to the different tribes in the order and in the way that they were, so I won't go into all of that. Joshua chapter 16, verse 1. Hold on. The allotment for Joseph began at the Jordan, east of the springs of Jericho. And they went up from there through the desert into the hill country of Bethel. It went on from Bethel, that is Luz, crossed over to the territory of the Archites in Adaroth, descended westward to the territory of the Japhletites, as far as the region of lower Bethphoron and on to Gezer, ending at the Mediterranean Sea. And so Manasseh and Ephraim, the descendants of Joseph, received their inheritance. This was the territory of Ephraim, according to its plans. The boundary of their inheritance went from Adaroth Adar in the east to upper Beth Haran and continued to the Mediterranean Sea. From Mikmethath on the north, it curved eastward to, to Anath Shiloh, passing on or by it to Genoa on the east. And then it went down from Genoa to Adaroth and Naara, touched Jericho and came out at the Jordan. From Tapua, the border went west to the Kana Ravine, ended at the Mediterranean Sea. This was the inheritance of the tribe of the Ephraimites, according to its clans. It also included all the towns and their villages that were set aside for the Ephraimites within the inheritance of the Manassites. Now that's some powerful devotional material right there. Now, I I don't know about you, but um, over the years as I've read the Bible at different times, if I'm brutally honest, this is sort of flyover country, right? This is sort of, you know, we get to a, oh, it's a list of descriptions. Oh, it's a genealogy. Oh, it's a Levitical list of dietary laws. And we just sort of put the brain in neutral, right? And our eyes hit the page so we can say, I checked it off. I did my reading today. Good grief, what was that? Right? That's sort of what this can be. Take a deep breath. And now I want you to catch the very last verse, the very last thing that the author wants us to know from this passage. After all this land-grant detail, this curious final sentence, verse 10, they did not dislodge the Canaanites living in Gezer. To this day, the Canaanites live among the people of Ephraim, but are required to do forced labor. It's just kind of a footnote. Right? They, we've gotten the whole land-grant detail, all these towns that many of us have never heard of, hard to pronounce, hard to even figure out in our brain where it's at. And then this last line. But this is actually, actually, a key verse in this whole description of how Ephraim and Manasseh were to get their inheritance. You've already had great teaching. Here's the map behind me. On the division of the land of Israel. Manasseh, you can see there Ephraim just below in the purple or the lavender. And so I want to pick up the oddity of that final verse in chapter 16 
just by reading it again, and then we're going to take some steps forward. Again, verse 10. They did not dislodge the Canaanites living in Gezer. To this day, the Canaanites live among the people of Ephraim, but are required to do forced labor. Moving on now. Joshua, you've already been seeing and experiencing, is the story of victory through obedience, right? Joshua is the story of victory through obedience. Forty years of wandering in the desert, they get things right with God at Gilgal, then they move in and start to take the land. Jericho is their first pit stop. But then they go on, now the division of the land has been done, and they are to go in and to finish mopping up. The key cities have already been taken, they are to finish mopping up and sort of clearing the land to make it usable for their tribe. Joshua is the story of victory that comes through obedience. It is a bright spot. Joshua is a bright spot. After years of disobedience, after years of failure, of wandering in the desert, of death after death after death, until the entire previous generation that had been unfaithful to God had passed away. It's a story of failure of sin and of compromise. And then we have the future looking so bright in the narrative of Joshua. They're finally in the promised land. They're finally headed home. But, fast forward a little bit, what's the next book after Joshua in the Old Testament? Anybody? Judges, right? Do you usually turn to Judges for key encouragement in your life? No. Judges is a low point in the nation and the story of the nation of Israel. Joshua is this high point. Judges is this low point. If Joshua is the story of victory through obedience, Judges is the story of failure through compromise. In fact, the key verse in all of Judges that gets repeated over and over and over again is this, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Sounds a lot like current events. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It becomes a disastrous period in Israel's story. So, begs the question, what happened? How do we go from this high moment in Joshua 16, where the land is being divided up, to not too many years later, Judges finds the nation of Israel far from God, having forgotten the past, most don't even remember how they got in the land anymore. What happened? And I want to suggest this to you this morning. The seeds of what takes place next in the book of Judges were planted in the story of Joshua. The seeds that led to compromise and disaster for the people started here in the book of Joshua because small compromises lead to devastating and unexpected consequences. Small compromises lead to unexpected consequences. Here's the principle. What you allow in moderation, your children will take to excess. What you allow in moderation, your children and your grandchildren will take to excess. Now, I come from a, a family of Dutchmen, Hedinga. Dutch. Uh, my my uh, daughter recently was down in Portland, and, and somehow she came across a Hedinga somewhere. And she said, Daddy, are, do we know anybody named Hedinga in Portland? And I said, I don't know, but they got to be related to us, because the Hets came from Tinga. So they got to be part of our family. In fact, when I went to school in 1985 at Multnomah, 
in Portland. I looked in the phone book, found a list of Hedinga's, and I cold called all of them just to find out how are we related exactly. And it was awkward because I was the creepy guy calling them <laughs> and asking about their parents, right? Yeah, kind of weird. But uh, I'm a Dutchman, and so I, I don't know if you know much about Midwest Dutch, but I grew up in Wisconsin, um, Michigan, in the Upper Peninsula of the UP. Any Upers up there? No? Nobody? There you go, right? So you have some culture in your life. That's good. Uh, so I, when I was growing up, my uncles, my grandpa, my dad, uh, the banter between, uh, between them was, was biting, right? That, that's part of their love language was, uh, we're going to tear you down as a way to communicate how much we love you. Anybody else come from that kind of family system? Yeah, so uh, I grew up hearing words like sungerput. Anybody ever heard the word sungerput? I don't know what it means. It just meant... I guess something derogatory-ish, but also somewhat loving. Oh, you old sungerput. What? What? Knucklehead, meathead. Um, you know, those are the kind of things. Numbskull. Heard that a lot when I was a kid. And, and so they, that was just part of the language. It had been passed on from father to son for generations. And you just sort of, you just sort of, you didn't encourage one another all that much, but you sort of took a little bite here and there. I'm a smart aleck. I tend to be rather quick-witted. And, and so I took that, what I thought was just, you know, that's how we talk to each other. We encourage each other by pushing each other around a little bit, by taking a little bite here and there. And so I learned to be fast and vicious with my tongue. In fact, that became for years a focal point of the Holy Spirit's work in my life was mastering the tongue. I had to memorize the passages on the tongue in the Proverbs and in James because that became such an issue. Once I was called into pastoral ministry, I was smart enough to recognize I'm going to make a living communicating the gospel. I can't at the same time make a living cutting people down. Those two really are dichotomous. So we have to do something a little bit different. What my parents, what my family of origin did in moderation, I at least, as a young man, took to Excess. Maybe you have other things that pop into your mind that are part of your life or part of your struggle with sin or with compromise, and you can see the seeds of it having been planted in the previous generations. One of the things when I do pre-marriage counseling, uh, the only kind of counseling that I was doing after about three years at Cascade and, and rapid growth, um, I just decided the only kind of counseling I want to do, because I don't think I'm very good at it, is pre-marriage, because I can get ahead of the problems before they exist. Because what I was finding is when people came in for marriage counseling, it was less about, in my opinion, wanting help and more about, will you give us the papal blessing? The pastor said, I'm more right than the idiot. Right? So I, I just decided, I, I, want, I don't want any part of that game. We'll send them to somebody else who's more qualified and better equipped, and, and I'll just do pre-marriage. And I would always go into family of origin stuff. How did your parents fight? How did your parents communicate? How did your parents walk with Jesus together? How did your parents handle money? How did your parents deal with vacations? How did they deal with holidays? All of that stuff. And we would unpack it, and I would say, what do you like about that that you want to replicate in your life? What do you not enjoy about you, how you were raised and what's in your parents and your grandparents? Well, how would you like to mitigate against that cooperating with the Holy Spirit? These are real, real issues, and we see it coming up in Joshua chapter 16. Joshua 15, actually going to rewind one chapter. 
I want to take us to Joshua 15 because we find this little footnote in several places in Joshua. Joshua 15 is a description of Judah's land grant. These center chapters in Joshua are all recording land distribution, but in several places there are these weird footnotes. Here it is in Joshua 15, verse 63. Judah could not dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the people of Judah. Now, we read that and we think, oh, okay. I read that and I go, what? What? Seriously? You could not dislodge. Rewind to Deuteronomy 31. What exactly did God say through Moses? He will drive them out. Be strong and courageous, for the Lord your God goes with you wherever you go. And here Judah is saying, eh, they were kind of tough. What happened? What happened? Joshua 16.10, they did not dislodge the Canaanites living in Gezer, and to this day the Canaanites live among the people of Ephraim, but are required to do forced labor. Did not dislodge. Again, why not? How come? What happened? Verse 17, however, when the Israelites grew stronger, they subjected the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Why not? What happened? And then Judges chapter 1. Turn over to Judges chapter 1, verse 19. Listen to what this says. Judges, remember, the key to understanding Judges is everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so we're getting the setup for the story of Judges. Verse 19 says this, The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had iron chariots. Oh, so iron chariots trump be strong and courageous. Apparently. Because they had iron chariots. As Moses had promised, Hebron was given to Caleb, who drove from it the three sons of Anak. The Benjamites, however, failed to dislodge the Jebusites, who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjamites. Move on down to verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshan or Ta'anak or Dor of Eblium or Megiddo and their surrounding settlements, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. And when Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer, but the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Verse 30. Neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Katran, or Nahala, who remained among them, but they did subject them to forced labor. Nor did Asher drive out those living in Akko, or Sidon, or Alab, or Azib, or Helba, or Aphek, or Rahab. And because of this, the people of Asher lived among the Canaanites. Neither did, verse 33, Naphtali drive out, and on and on and on. You get the point. 95% obedience seemed to be the norm. And I, I don't know exactly why, but over and over it says the same refrain. They did not drive them out. And so victory through obedience is being celebrated all through the narrator of, narrative of Joshua. But then there's these little strange footnotes that Judges 1 picks up and says, here's all the ways that we didn't quite get the job done. We obeyed. We saw God work. There were miracles. We were celebrating but we did not get the job done. We didn't finish the task. 
and the amazing blessing of finally taking the inheritance of the land in Joshua because they did not follow through on earlier obedience and on earlier success ends up leading to destruction. And, and we wonder why. You know, maybe, maybe they were just tired of fighting. Maybe they were just tired of the bloodshed. Maybe they got a little bit complacent. They thought, well, we got rid of the bulk of our enemies. 95% obedience, well, maybe that's good enough. Maybe last year's obedience is good enough. And lest we be too harsh on them. Don't we struggle with the same sort of thing? Now, I, I found myself, I just turned 54 in May. Not only am I surprised to be over 50 and still going, but I find myself struggling at times. Do I really want to risk? Do I really want to step out in faith in the same way that I did when I was 25, 35, 45? I mean, I, can't yesterday's obedience count for something? Can't yesterday's faithfulness count for something? And I, I wonder if some of that is what was going on. They were justifying somehow. But the reality is this. Incomplete obedience becomes the nation's downfall in succeeding generations. Unfinished business got their kids into trouble. And the children and the grandchildren paid the price of parental compromise. Living a legacy looks like this. What you allow in moderation, your children will tend to take to excess. A little sin, a little compromise in mom and dad, in grandma and grandpa, becomes the root from which total rebellion grows in the kids. What does that look like? We talk just for a moment about some of the results of generational compromise. And the first is this. The next generation becomes hardened to sin. Even if they see you in worship, just as these folks saw their parents in worship at the tabernacle, even if they see your generosity, even if they see your service to others, they also see the moments when you compromise at home and nobody else is looking, it's just the family. And that often tends to be where we let things down more than anywhere else. Isn't it? The children of Israel, meaning the kids and the grandkids, became exposed to Canaanite culture almost from birth. So what God had intended to be a completely uh, safe place, we talk about safe spaces these days, Israel, the promised land, was supposed to be that, a safe space for God to dwell with his chosen people. Instead, because remnants were left, because the job was done 95%, but not 100, the kids become exposed to Canaanite culture from birth. See, the kids, pretty soon, two generations, three generations down the road, they don't remember the miracle stories of conquest. I mean, they might hear and maybe sing about Joshua fitting the battle of Jericho. Maybe they sang those songs and marched about. But they hadn't experienced God coming through like their parents and grandparents had. They only saw the godless people who were neighbors and classmates and friends of theirs. They grew up believing a little compromise is okay. If it's good enough for mom and dad, then it's cool for me to push that boundary maybe a little bit further. Joshua chapter 2, or excuse me, Judges chapter 2, verse 10. 
goes on and talks about this a little bit more. After that whole generation, the previous generation, had been gathered up to their fathers, they had died, another generation grew up, catch this, who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. That's one of the saddest verses in the Bible. That the faithfulness of one generation could completely be wiped out, dissipated, in the next succeeding generation. It's been said by people way smarter than me that the church of Jesus Christ is always just one generation away from extinction. Now, we have the Holy Spirit. We have the promise of Jesus that this thing called the church is going to continue to be the vessel that carries forth the gospel until Jesus returns. But the reality on the ground in our families is that our faithfulness is passed on to the next generation and to the next and to the next. Israel was told, drive out, destroy. But because they didn't complete their task, their kids soon begin to serve other gods. Why? Those that were left in the land, one of the justifications for the parents allowing the job not to be complete was they forced those remnants, the Jebusites, for example, the Canaanites, to be servants to them. What do servants do on a domestic level? They take care of the house. They take care of the kids. So these children were being raised by people who didn't believe in Yahweh, who worshipped Baal and Asherah. And that had an impact on the students. Just as the influences of those who teach our kids in our schools or in our universities have an impact on them. Be very thoughtful about who gets an opportunity to speak into the lives of your kids. And so they begin to do exactly what God told them not to do. They start to intermarry. They start to worship these other gods. Even though Moses had been explicit in Deuteronomy, don't you do it. Don't you do it. Drive them out. Don't marry those who don't also believe in God like you do. Don't worship their gods. Don't get enticed into the things that will seem fun and exciting. You stay the course. Be careful who influences the kids. Secondly, kids struggle to know and to do what is right. It's tough to nurture worship of one true God, of Yahweh himself, when you're raised with kids or raised with other kids, and you're raised by nannies who had served many gods. Satan had no right in the land, and yet he's given permission to live there, and, to make, and he makes full use of that opportunity. Personal ease and apathy begin to supersede the zeal for God that once burned hot and bright. And kids were justifying their choices. Well, if it's okay for mom and dad... In this little area over here, then it's okay for me in these huge areas over here. A little compromise has far-reaching impact. If you're off a little bit here, but you're going all the way to here, by the time you get here, you're off this much. In 1992, I was finishing a seminary degree, Western in Portland. Uh, I had a little cohort of friends that uh, were deciding to do something big to celebrate it. Now, I was the only one with a baby. We had a, a newborn at home. Uh, she was three months old. 
And uh, my wife let me go along with the idea that we'd had prior to giving birth. And so what we decided to do is we're going to celebrate finishing our degrees by jumping out of a perfectly good airplane together. And so that was our celebration. We were going to jump out of this airplane. It was outside of Portland uh, a little ways. And, and the day that we showed up, it actually was fixing to storm. And so we, we all go through the, the pre-flight stuff, and they get us in our jumpsuits, and, and we have to lay on the ground and practice how we're going to you know, like arch our backs and, and position ourselves as we come out of the airplane. And, and I'm thinking like C-130, right? Just this huge military aircraft is what we're jumping out of. And then they get our parachutes on, and they walk us out to the plane, and it's this tiny little plane with no door on the side. Three of us crammed into it. The other three had to wait for the next go-around. And uh, the first guy gets in, and he's crammed. He was a tiny guy anyway. He's crammed all the way back into the tail, and he's kind of hunched over on all fours. The next guy comes in, he's hunched right in front of him, and then I was right in front of him. So I was going to be the first one out the door. Now, this was a not a Christian-based, right, not a God-fearing sort of organization. Um, we picked that up really clearly during the training. The language was a little salty, and uh, the jokes were a little perverse. And uh, we get up, up around uh, 10,000 feet, and, uh, and I'm looking outside and realize it's snowing at 10,000 feet. And the wind is blowing hard. And I actually yelled to the pilot, are you sure we should jump out in this? And he's like, ah, it'll be fine. We're pushing the envelope a little bit, but we should be fine. And I'm thinking, you just want the fee, bro. You don't want to have to put us back in this plane in another week when it's safe to do so. I mean, way outside the parameters of when we should have been allowed out of that airplane. And finally, the guy turns to me and he says, all right, uh, you got the green light. And so I, he says, now, your job is to, to lean out of the open door, which doesn't exist. There's no door. You're going to lean out. You're going to grab the strut underneath the wing. And somebody had cheerfully put two bumper stickers right where you put your hands. The first one said, stuff happens. And the next one was the Nike symbol and said, just do it. So I'm hanging on, looking at these bumper stickers, my final words, right? And then he says, let go. And I let go. And as soon as I pull the chute and I get my bearings, the snow is blinding. It's, it's hitting me in the face. And I realize I'm already past the airfield. And I'm being blown further from the airfield. So it was off just a little bit from the start. Because of the wind and the conditions, I was way, I, and I missed the airport by a literal mile. I landed on the top of a two-story house. I took out an entire row of cedar shake shingles with my knee because the parachute hit on the roof, collapsed, and then the wind blew the chute over the edge of the second story, and it started to open again and drag me off. And so I'm ripping up all these shingles with my, with my knee. And finally, I'm settled, and I get the parachute unhooked, and I'm just sitting there waiting. Half an hour later, they come up in a truck, and they are cussing me out because obviously it's my fault that I landed on a roof instead of the power lines. The guy who came out of the plane behind me landed, fortunately, he was a logger. He landed at, a, at the top of a 140-foot fir tree. He knew how to get up and down fir trees, so he got himself down just fine. He left the parachute up, which I thought was hysterical. Uh, and I'd have done the same thing. When you're off just a little bit at the beginning, you don't think it's a big deal. But when you get way over here, you can find yourself far from where you intended 
And that same thing occurs in our personal lives when it comes to compromise. For the children of Israel, that was true. And so here's what I want just invite you to do. Examine your own upbringing. Just think for a moment. We all want to be gracious to our folks and to our grand folks. They did the best they could, just like we did the best that we can. But examine your own upbringing. In what ways are you like your parents and your grandparents? And it's a good thing. You're like them, and you think, that this is something to celebrate. In what ways are you like your parents and your grandparents? But maybe it's not so good. Conversely, as you look at your own legacy, in what ways are your kids like you, your grandkids like you? And it's a good thing. You say, I'm so grateful that they're following our example and taking it even further. But also, in what ways are your kids, your grandkids like you? And maybe it's not so good. What do you do with that? I want to suggest that if the Lord impresses something on your heart related to either how you were raised or how you raised others, how you influenced others or how you have been influenced, and if there's something there for you, it could be appropriate for you to say, I think I need to repent of that. I've not really thought of that as a compromise, but I think I, I, think I need to repent. And maybe go back and have a conversation. I've had awkward conversations with our four adult kids where I've had to go back to them and say, you know what, I... I remember some things that I said. I remember some things that I did. And I just want to tell you, I'm sorry. And you know what I've found so far? Kids are pretty gracious. They say, Dad, it wasn't that bad. Well, actually, it was. But God was there, too. Maybe that leads to a moment of conversation and a, and a new commitment, a fresh call to walk afresh in obedience completely, to drive out the enemy, to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. What you and I do, what we allow in moderation, our kids will often take to excess. And I, and I think that's part of the story that is often overlooked in these flyover land description passages in the book of Joshua. There's a sowing and a reaping principle at work in Joshua 16 that transmits to judges. Last year, or excuse me, in 2019, just before I took this new role of serving the churches of Converge Northwest. I had some sabbatical. My church was gracious, gave us 14 weeks uh, in between leaving Cascade and, and taking the district exec role. And I meditated on Philippians chapter 1, uh, 2, 3, 4, through that whole summer. I'd read one chapter a day, soak in it, second chapter, third, rinse and repeat, all summer long. There's a verse that became pivotal for Amy and I, for our kids at the end of chapter 1. It says this. Paul is talking. He's writing from prison. He's writing to churches that are about to undergo persecution. And he says this. Whatever happens, whatever happens, you conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whatever happens. Now, transition is difficult. I had a good transition, but it still was one of the most painful things I've ever been through in my life. Whatever happens, grace point, whatever happens with your pastor, with your leaders, with the pandemic, with politics, whatever happens, you conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
We live in a deteriorating culture. We're not called to save the culture of a particular nation, per se. We're called to save souls. Every nation rises and falls. Every church rises and falls. But our mission remains the same, to go into all the world and to make disciples. We're called to center our lives on Jesus and to live out the gospel in a corrupt generation. Don't be discouraged. Keep on keeping on. And it's possible that for some of us, we've heard these words this morning, and, and some of you are thinking, I'm complicit in what's happened with my kids or my grandkids. Then you do what you can do. You own what you could own, perhaps, and you continue to pray and invest in their lives. Live for Jesus today, wholeheartedly, without compromise, and God will continue the process in the next generation. What you and I allow in moderation, our kids will tend to take to excess. What kind of legacy are you leaving? Are, are you living? And what kind of heritage will you leave? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, even as I've been preaching these words and reading these texts, uh, there's a part of my heart that is embarrassed. Because I am more aware than anybody of my own compromises, my own sins, the little Scooby snacks that I save for myself. And Jesus, I just ask your forgiveness again today in this moment for the ways in which I compromise and then for how I see the very same thing showing up in my kids. Jesus, we know we're not going to live perfect lives, but we want to live faithful as your servants, as your sons, as your daughters. Thank you for grace. Thank you for forgiveness. Thanks for second chances and do-overs. And as a people, as a church, we just say together, Jesus, we're all in. We want you to be the central, most important thing about us. And so we center there again this morning. In your precious name we pray. Thank you, uh, Nate, very much, and thank you, the tech team and the worship team for all you did today. So let me uh, dismiss with a benediction from Revelation chapter 7, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen.